Greenhouse Talent Makers Studio. We're live right now interviewing forward-thinking leaders on every side of the hiring process. Great hiring is not just the result of great recruiters working their magic. It's a company-wide commitment that's vital to building amazing workplaces. And it all starts with our leaders. At Greenhouse, we know that great leaders are talent makers. They understand what it takes to elevate hiring to a strategic capability that pushes the business forward. And it's not easy. That's why we've asked some brilliant folks to join us and share the challenges they've overcome and the lessons that they've learned on the way to aligning their people strategy to their business strategy. So join me and get ready to learn what it means to be a talent maker. Salima is the Chief Equity and Inclusion System Strategist for Alphabet. She has led in the space of equity, inclusion, and diversity over the last 20 years as a consultant, researcher, educator, and systems designer. Her PhD looked at how to shape social inclusion and equity in racial and gender complex environments. Before coming to Alphabet, she was the founder and CEO of a consulting firm empowering organizations to drive EID and systematic change. Salima, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Lauren. It's awesome to have you. And to start, I would love to learn about what you love about working at Alphabet. You know, I've been, uh, as my bio reads, I've been at this for 20 years, um, which is a very long time to commit to one thing (laughs) for your entire career. Um, But the thing that I've learned, actually, is that the work of equity, inclusion, and diversity is consistent and constant. Um, And, you know, I... You know, if you go back just 20, 20 years or even 10 years, this wasn't top of mind for companies and organizations or even governments. And what you have now is really a fundamentally new moment where it really has uh, taken root in literally the ether of industries. And because that's happened, what I also feel like has changed is that I'm not working against the grain to convince a company that they need to resource this. So in the alphabet world, um, if you take Google as an example, you know they have a team of 130 people that work on equity, inclusion, and diversity. Um, with the bets, the bets might have their own equity, inclusion, and diversity lead. And then they also have me. So the, the bets have me to help build that vision in terms of what does equity, inclusion, and diversity really look like for the long term. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of creative possibility in, in the way my setup is um, as a strategist, but also um, in the fact that there's so much commitment and resourcing towards this. So. I think that this is all really, really exciting. Uh, it would be easy for me to tell you that, you know, I'm that after 20 years of this, I'm feeling like, hmm, <laughs> how much, how much, how much change have we really made? You know, and we have in some ways, and in other ways, we have a long way to go. But I think the real opportunity is in the momentum currently. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is that you went from a consulting role, working with a bunch of organizations, mm-hmm. to being internal, though still working with a lot of organizations, why was that switch the right thing for how you saw moving your mission forward? Because, you know, I I fundamentally believe that because the work requires sustained effort, as a consultant, you know, you go in, you do your bit and you leave and you actually don't get to see the impact or the effect of what's happening. 
What also happens as a consultant is, is you go in and the organization says, hey, we want X or Y or Z. You go in and you give that to them. And oftentimes in the EID space, what they'll say is, actually, that's not what we were looking for. And what it is is because they hadn't realized what the problem was. So I started to feel like I want to be somewhere where I can sort of see the change. You know, I can be part of the change and really drive and shape what that's going to look like over time. Um, and that's why the alphabet role is really exciting. While at the same time, it's, it's, an, it's a very unique role in that um, I get to partner and provide vision and leadership to these bets, while at the same time keeping some distance so that they can really take ownership. Um, and, and what I actually enjoy a lot about my role is that I get to work with other EID leaders that are embedded within the bets, and we get to put our genius and magic together to really drive things. So I get to say and do things that they would never be able to say and do because they are trying to manage internal dynamics differently than I can. So in some ways, it's like a it's a beautiful partnership, I think. And what's such a cool part of that opportunity, too, is that EID is not figured out, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. not like we know a playbook and we know yeah. exactly how we're going to go move the needle to where we want it to be. Completely. And so there's experimentation and learning and failures, and you get to see that mm -hmm. play out in a bunch of different types of organizations where they were probably, some were more ready, some were less ready, some had more change to do, some had less change to do. Completely. And I imagine start to have more pattern recognition mm -hmm. than someone who would be just internally for a long time, which makes you such a great person to learn from. Absolutely. You know, there's a great uh, opportunity in Alphabet for the bets and for, and for Google and for all these companies to really learn from each other, right? To, to your point, test and try things out and see what works and see what doesn't work. There's also, um, when you start to evaluate sort of the landscape of all of these organizations and whether that is evaluating it for its business readiness for equity, inclusion, and diversity, or whether you're evaluate, evaluating it for the experience that employees are having, whatever that evaluation may be, I think what you can start to do is, again, see the patterns across the organization. And you can ask yourself the question, are there things that we're actually dealing with that are similar or the same that would require a similar or the same response? In which case, we can actually start to scale a lot of what we get to do. Um, and in other instances, I think we can say, no, in fact, it's actually very distinct. And so we really need to curate the kinds of solutions or efforts we're going to put forward. And I really enjoy being sort of in the driver's seat of that and being able to have that macro and micro view in order to go in to really meet the organization where it is and to be adaptive and, and malleable. Because I, I really fundamentally think that this work is about it's, about, it's about adaptive leadership. It's about adaptive ecosystems. Because equity, inclusion, and diversity is not static, right? It's not like the issues are static. It's not like people are static. And so we need to have, we need to build the muscle to be really malleable. Um, and again, I think that that's the opportunity in the, in the alphabet realm. I was having a wonderful conversation with someone about bravery yesterday, oh. and I feel like that translates so well to this in that I think there's discomfort in signing up for work that is hard and personal and an experiment and knowing yes. that you don't exactly know what you're going to do. So I imagine a lot of your work is kind of getting leaders comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. How? Tell us a little bit about how you've found the most success in kind of getting ready to do that experimentation for leadership teams and what have been some lessons learned? Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, my, my thinking is, is that we actually need to go to leaders first because oftentimes you will quickly be able to assess how much movement is possible and not possible. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't do EID from the ground up. 
But I think if we look at the history of this work over the last you know decade or two decades, I mean, for tech, it's it's a newer, it's a newer conversation and it's a newer effort. But even if you look in other industries, really what you find is that ground up efforts only go so far. Because usually they'll hit some kind of wall or ceiling. Um, and so what I think that's really important is to get a sense of the pulse of the leadership. You know, what do you care about? What don't you care about? What do you have a view for? What don't you have a view for? What makes you uncomfortable? What makes you comfortable? And I think all of those kinds of questions can start to, again, sort of unthread or disentangle what you're actually dealing with at the leadership level. Um, organizations that have had the most promise in this area have been where you've had top leadership, whether that's the C CEO or the CTO or uh, or others in partnership, really taking ownership for this. And so I, I do think that there's value in that. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't make change from the middle of the organization or from the bottom of the organization. But I think it's really figuring out what you're dealing with. And I think that leaders can give you a, a certain view of what the business is actually ready for or not ready for. Now, what they probably don't have a view for, and I think that this has been consistently true in my experience, is actually what's happening on the ground. Unless you have a leader that's really in there and digging in and, and getting, you know, with the people, generally speaking, there is a gap between what they see as the vision or the ideal and what people actually require and need. And that's something that I continue to learn over and over again in my experience is that especially when you have these amazing companies doing these big technologically brilliant things, oftentimes they're operating at sort of the speed of space, you know? They're like, we can, we can like launch these big moonshots or we can like build a Google, but we have to bring other people along to that vision. And I find that sometimes there is a gap in that. And then EID kind of gets caught in, in in that tension, right? Of these amazing, of this amazing vision that a leader might have and the work it's gonna take us to actually get there. Um, and, and I think that the other thing that people, that I've learned is that leaders, leaders understand, fundamentally, I think, understand the problem from a vantage point that they understand themselves, right? And so I was talking about this uh, yesterday on the panel that BCG did this research where they were um, looking at leaders and they were asking leaders, like, what do you have a view for when it comes to EID? And most of them said hiring. And the reason why that is, is because they are not looking at it from the perspective of an ecosystem. They're looking at it from the perspective of what is missing and how do we fix, and it's a corrective, right? I think, and not to say that all leaders are coming at it that way, but I definitely think we're still in this place where people are trying to correct something that's wrong rather than transform something for the long term. And so I think, I think the transition for me in the work that I've done with leaders is to get them to the transformative thinking, right? We're not just correcting something. We're not just adding more women or people of color or whoever it may be, but we're actually thinking about what are we trying to achieve in the long run, right? What is our, what is our technology or innovation trying to achieve? And by doing this, how is it gonna support that? What do we wanna achieve in terms of our impact on the human race? Right? And what are we going to do in order to take, put steps in place that we can get there? And, and where is EID in that conversation? So I think for me that that's kind of the switch, right? It's like we're not just a corrective. That's, that can't be our goal. We're not being reactive to the environment because that's oftentimes how EID takes root, right? It's through reaction. Something happens. People are like, oh, my God, we got to do this. But we're really thinking about what 
why. Why is this so important and relevant? And some people are very bought into the moral case of it, saying, hey, I actually just really care. We need to we need to address this historical disadvantage that is in place for a lot of people, um, and for others it's like no, I actually think that this is going to have a real business outcome, and for others it's a little bit of both, um, and for others quite frankly they're still really lagging behind and they haven't figured out why it matters to them yet. So I really think it's it's having these really tough and difficult. Um, but pro- productive and constructive conversations with leaders to really like move their thinking out of reaction and, and tactical and really getting strategic and systemic. Is that hiring focus, you think, because they think about diversity primarily as yeah. the whole mission of EID, it's, or at least what the, it's visible, it's what's easy to understand, and then the inclusion and equity part is not as easy to understand? 100%, yeah. I think it, because it's very tangible, it's, and it's, very, it's, it's in your face to your point. I also think, and this is just a theory, and I could completely be wrong about this, so I'm sure someone's going to tell me I'm wrong, but, um, which is fine. Um, but my, I think in terms of some of the leaders that I interact with or have, have interacted with in the past, you know, they're building technologies, right? So they're very focused on something tangible. It's in their face. They see it. Um, and it's, it's a very, it can be a very tactical thing. Whereas when you start to get into people's experiences and you start to get into what is happening in an ecosystem, oftentimes that's abstract and, and qualitative and very complex. So I was just talking to someone recently and they're saying to me that when, you, when we try to build technology... Uh, oftentimes what engineers will do is they'll remove complexity out of the technology, right? So they are trying to take out the social context to some extent so they can build this thing that's going to do something. The thing that we haven't figured out is actually how to bring in the complexity while also building the technology. And so I think in some ways it's reflective of the thinking of engineers and, and, and folks in tech who have grown up in tech, where we've actually tried to remove the complexity in order to build certain things. But really what we haven't figured out yet, I think, is how you actually have the, the complexity and the technology speaking to each other. And they are speaking to each other all the time. And I, so I think in some ways that kind of thinking and approach is actually getting reflected in how we think about EID. We think of it as a tactical thing that we do. And the number of times I have people say to me, um, you know, when we're doing like an, like some kind of capability building session and they'll say, you know, part of that session will be, let's really think about like how we think about equity, inclusion and diversity. Let's think about the problems. And what they'll say is, yeah, but just tell me what to do. Like I need the action. I'm like, the thinking is the action actually that's going to lead you to more action. But they just don't see it that way because you're so used to being tactical and tangible about, about their day to day work. And I, I feel like what employees ask for is also the plan, right? Yes. They want to know that Completely. there is a plan and yeah. tactics that are happening Completely. and they want it to feel holistic and complete and that they know that their company is doing yeah. everything. So I imagine that for, that's, that's the real challenge for leaders is you have to do the big thinking and then know that you're also going to get asked for this very tactical thing and not try to overweight too far in either direction. And, and it's a complete balancing act because I think for me, what has been a big lesson is that uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm walking into a situation where people over-index on the tactical 
and on the actionable. And what I'm asking them to do is move in a different direction that they're actually not used to, right? They're actually not used to being hyper-strategic and slowing down. And I'm asking them to slow down and be thoughtful. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not taking action. You're just taking action thoughtfully, which is which is slightly different. And so there is a there is a consistent tension in that that I find myself in. Um, and, and, and to your point, I think employees want tactical action, but I'm not always convinced that employees are the best people to tell you what they need all the time. And I'll give you an example. You know, when I, I've done quite a bit of uh, qualitative research and talking to women about their experiences, you know, across the companies that I work with, And, you know, one of the things that women consistently say is that when this thing happens to me, I'm actually unclear whether it's happening to me or not. Like I second guess myself and I'm like, maybe I'm overreacting. I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to look like I'm complaining. So, you know, we second guess everything that's going on in our world because we don't want to appear a certain way or we can't believe that it's happening or there's like a competing narrative, right? On the one hand, there's a narrative that we believe in equality or equity and that everybody should be treated fairly. But at the same time, this other thing is happening. So what I've learned through that is that sometimes they can't identify what's happening to themselves because of those things. And until someone asks, they don't even share it, right? So we are sometimes are going to employees and saying, hey, help us define the problem, but they're struggling to define the problem themselves. That's not always the case. A lot of people are very insightful and they know exactly what's going on, which is wonderful, but that's not always the case. And so I think it's almost like, you know, sometimes I feel like it's like telling people what they don't know what they think that they know but they don't know you know and and bringing that to them giving them the mirror and the sort of landscape that they haven't seen before or they've been looking at but they need to look at it differently um and and i think that that is for me that's been some of the most fruitful work that i've been able to do with the bats is really surface those stories and surface those experiences and quite frankly you know leaders and, and some of those experiences are very positive and some of those experiences are you know not and leaders being able to take the full picture in front of them and say, ah, oh, okay, I get it. That description of the research you did with women is such a great example of what of the complexity that you were talking about earlier. And that if you try to build a technology that just controls out every single variable and like makes it about like one specific problem that you can solve, you'll miss the whole picture. And so the opportunity for technology actually seems like recognizing that behaviors are interacting in a bunch of different ways Completely. for one person, for a bunch of people, and just like supporting those behaviors moving in the right direction rather than trying to like replace or fix the behaviors completely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think to your point, I mean, one of the one of the struggles I think that we have is that when you're dealing with qualitative problems and you're dealing with human complexity and dynamics, the thing the thing about that is some of that isn't actually not can't be quantitative in terms of response or in terms of even measurement, right? Some of it can be and some of it can't be. And it's kind of living in that liminal space between these two pieces of data that people are more used to the quantitative, quite frankly, than they are the qualitative in a lot of the spaces that I'm in. Um, but getting folks to be comfortable with both at the same time and saying when we actually are thinking about what to do and how to measure success, some of it is going to be very clear and some of it is actually going to be very ambiguous, which ironically, ironically, we talk about and celebrate, right? We talk about and celebrate ambiguity as like sort of the, you know, this kind of 
this um, energy that allows creativity, right? And allows engineers to do great things and allows other people to do great things. But yet we're hyper uncomfortable with that ambiguity in other spaces, right? So there's all these contradictions that you're constantly like managing and dealing with and like navigating as you're doing the work. Oh, very good point. I Ambiguity, like comfort with ambiguity, I feel like is on almost all job descriptions for tech roles. Yes. And yet we have a really hard time dealing with it when it's about yes. people. So we have a lot of talent leaders and practitioners that will be listening, um, knowing that it is such a kind of complex space that does need to get to the leadership level. What kind of um, tips or in, um, lessons learned would you share with that group about how to kind of start chipping away at, at moving your company in a direction where they can do that big, thoughtful work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, I think it's to understand... Um, understand EID as a wicked problem, right? It, it, it is a complex problem. And from a systems thinking perspective, it's a wicked problem because you're dealing with humans, you're dealing with process, you're dealing with systems, you're dealing with dynamics, you're dealing with business objectives and, and, and flows. I mean, you're dealing with so many elements at the same time. And I think one of the, one of the biggest areas of advice I can give is to actually start seeing it that way. Because what we do is when we are actually a part of a function, whether you are a recruiter or a head of staffing or the head of HR or whatever, whoever it might be, we see the problem through our own vantage point, which makes, which makes a lot of sense, right? You're, you're in it, so you're going you're gonna to always use that as a way to look at the problem. But I think all of us need to take a bit of a step back and say, okay, here's how it looks like from my vantage point, but as a, as a staffing lead, but hey, how does it look like from the vantage point of a hiring manager? And how does it look like from the vantage point of an HR business partner? And how does it look like from the vantage point of my CEO and maybe my CTO and maybe my COO who actually might be setting headcount, right? They, they might have a very different view and understanding of that than I do. And so if we can do that, then what we actually do is put, put ourselves in the position to be very strategic about how we move the change. And I think, you know, fundamentally, one, one thing that I see in absence of in a lot of the conversation around EID is that it, it is, to me, a fundamentally a, a change and transformation project, right? Which requires change management. It requires a, an understanding of how change happens or how it could possibly happen in the context of your organization. And unless you see it that way, you will only like kind of hit the hit the issue at, at one sort of one piece in the process, and actually miss all other things that are going to affect it. The example, like uh, a very concrete example of that, is that when you know some organizations set aspirational hiring goals, and they might say, you know, we want to reach 25% women or something like that in the next like two years. The issue that I have with that kind of goal is unless you're actually coming at that goal systemically, so unless you're understanding all the players and stakeholders and dynamics that are going to help support and achieve that goal, you actually never achieve the goal. You will you'll hit the roadblock, right? So whether it is whether it is the fact that hiring managers say that they want it, but they're actually then not making the decision or choice. It's figuring out why that's happening. If it's because the way headcount allocation happens in your organization, it actually impedes your ability to go out and find women and people of color because we know it takes longer to do that. That can become the impediment. So it's really figuring out in your system, like what is it that's inhibiting this outcome? And usually it's not just one thing. It's, it's multiple things that are operating in the ecosystem and creating the outcome that we ultimately don't want. 
And then that's where the tactics come back into play. Like once you understand right. that, like then it can be very specific. Like this hiring manager needs to go to coffee exactly. with three people every month to help exactly. us build this top of funnel. And we start the exactly. planning process two months earlier and need X data to be yeah. able to do it. Yeah, and that exactly. roadmap can become visible again. Completely, yeah. And and that's and that's just it. Exactly what you just said. That it's not that we don't want tactics, but we want thoughtful tactics, and we want tactics that are going to have downstream and upstream of, up, upstream effects, right? We don't want tactics that are just kind of landing flat. We actually want to ask what impact is this going to have in the short and long term in terms of what we're going to do. And quite frankly, organizations are very busy. They're busy. They're 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 overrun. They've got a million things to do. So my my other recommendation is think about think about doing something that is actually going to have an effect over time, right? And if you, if you can understand what your North Star is and figure that out, and you can understand what you're solving for, then you can figure out what tactics you need that are going to get you to that place. And then, of course, measure your progress and measure your impact because... One of the things that we tend to do is we, we if, we, if we're measuring at all, we measure to some extent the impact, but we're not measuring progress. And because, again, this is a long-term play, we really need to be measuring every step that we're taking towards our ultimate goal, whatever that is. And I think, too, what we've talked about is knowing that you're going to uncover more things later. So Absolutely. it's a that change, the transformation that you've Absolutely. talked about is long and like anticipating yes. that it'll feel like you ended up in the wrong place at some point and have yes. to kind of rebuild the map and that yes. viewpoint of assuming it will be a long project helps it not feel like you've gotten stuck too early. Yeah, which is why I think that it's so important for us to build muscle yeah. around how to think about equity, inclusion, and diversity, how to approach it, what it requires of us at different points in time, rather than thinking of it as a programmatic or tactical um, effort, right? We're, we're actually building muscle. We're getting people to have the skill and ability to see the to see equity, inclusion, and diversity, to know how to approach it, to know how to think about it, so that no matter where your organization goes, you're adaptive, right? To go back to that adaptive leadership, that for me is fundamentally what it's about. Because again, there is no formula, Right. There's some things that will work for one organization that won't for another. It'll work for you for two years and then it won't work for you for five years down the line. Right. So really, can we get can we get resilient as an organization around this and, and really build that muscle so that we can move in any direction that we need with this skill now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about lessons learned or kind of pitfalls that you've seen along the way we've or I've I've heard you speak before about what you've come to learn about trainings and your perspective on conscious bias training tell us a little bit about that yeah, you know, I um, there's quite a bit of research now that shows that training is not the, is, is not going to get you the effect, ultimate effect that you may want. I mean, if you if you as an organization want the effect of we did the training, that's exactly what it's going to do for you, right? But if you ultimately want to change behavior or you want to incentivize people differently to you know make different kinds of choices or you want to you know increase transparency in your organization or you want women and people of color to feel like they're being valued, like whatever it is that you're trying to address, training is not going to get you there. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have what I call capability building efforts. I think that you do, but it's always that you're thinking about it for the journey. If we want, for instance, to address that um, women are not getting evaluated fairly in their performance, Doing an unconscious bias training with managers is not going to mitigate that, is what I argue, right? And in fact, 
a lot of the research shows that that's in fact exactly the case. It doesn't mitigate it. But what could mitigate it is, you know, a whole host of interventions, right? And maybe, maybe unconscious bias training is part of that, maybe. But it's definitely not the answer. And I feel like a lot of what organizations have done is made that the answer in response to issues that it actually can't solve for, quite frankly. And in some cases, we've seen research that shows that it makes it worse for women and people of color. And so, again, it's about being really thoughtful. Um, and I think using, going going there and actually looking at the applied and academic research around a lot of the stuff that we choose uh, to do with our organizations to really dig in about the effect of, of, of the things that we are um, pursuing. So a potential uh, means to an end, but not an end itself, not just like you can run out, you can roll out training once a year to everyone and feel like you've done no. anything close to EID work. Yeah, the, the most effective um, learning and development that we see are ones that are consistent, that have um, a long-term view, that are addressing specific things that are experiential. So there are there are indicators that we have for LND that actually works and that works well, but it has certain kinds of characteristics. And I'm not convinced that a lot of the a lot of the training that we do has those characteristics to really help us towards the outcome that we want. And again, part of the problem is I think in my experience when I've seen DNI training is that we're not clear about the outcome that we want. We're not clear about the problem that we're trying to solve. But something I say to the vets all the time is that if you want to do manager training or development, what are you trying to solve for? What is, what is the gap? What is the lack? What is the need? If we can understand that, then we can really like build and shape this development in the direction that you know we need ultimately. Um, and the other thing about that too is, is that you know, oftentimes what happens with a lot of trainings is you do the training and then that's it, right? People are left to their own devices. And we actually don't know if it's had a translation into action. We actually don't know whether people are able to take parts of that training and say, ooh, I'm trying it out here, but it's actually really difficult because I'm hitting this barrier or that block or, you know, actually I have all these blind spots about this, so I don't know how to apply this. We're not having those conversations afterwards. So it kind of just like drops. Um, and, and so I think actually think it's wasted effort, quite frankly. To, to circle back to the um, idea of, you know, doing the hard work and then having a vision for you're trying to take your company. Yeah. How does that circle back to hiring? How do you end up seeing a talent team partnering with the rest of their organization differently when they're on a EIND journey? You know, one, one of the things that I think is fundamentally important, again, is that we empower uh, the functions that are trying to move the goal forward, whatever that goal is, and if it's hiring, then I think one of the things that I've seen, it's, it's, it's interesting, I've seen that we actually haven't invested in the talent team itself. So uh, one example I'll give you is, um, I was talking to one, one group of people about, about hire, uh, the hiring team, about EID and the goals that we're setting and thinking about, and you know, some of them said, you know, I actually don't know how to have conversations with hiring managers. I don't, I don't, I'm not really incentivized to do that. I'm not positioned in a way where I can do that, nor am I comfortable doing that. You know, some, another thing that came up was, I actually don't know how to go out there and find underrepresented talent. I have like no idea how to do that because what I'm used to doing is going on LinkedIn. 
what I'm used to doing is saying, hey, we want this suite and going to like, you know, going to Stanford or going to MIT and finding that suite. That's what I know what to do. So what we haven't really done is then also invest in um, staffing teams or, you know, talent teams to really say, hey, what do you actually need to be empowered to do this? And while that's happening, also identifying what are the inhibitors for them as they're actually moving, trying to move this within the ecosystem, right? So whether it's working with a hiring manager or whether it's working with an HR partner or whether it's working on the hiring like process itself, really figuring out like what parts of the talent, te- what parts do the talent team need to own of this and what parts of this do they need to own with other partners in order to actually move the needle. That has actually been hugely eye-opening. And one of the things that I've heard from a lot of talent teams is they're frustrated because what they feel like is the burden has been put on them to solve this big problem. Right? And because, again, we tend to over-index on hiring, they feel like, oh, no, now I'm, I'm the one who's responsible for fixing like a historical issue <laughs> that we have as an organization, that we've had as a society, and it's all up to me to do it. And they're usually not empowered to do so. They're usually given, they're not given the resources to do so or the time to do so. Um, They don't have hiring manager buy-in. They might theoretically, but not in actuality. They are not in control of headcount. They're not in control of, you know, what sometimes even what the hiring like process looks like because hiring managers are setting job descriptions and they're they're not a part of that conversation. So really, I think what they have, what I've been hearing from them is I don't want to be responsible for this problem on my own. And I can't fix it on my own because I have all these things that I'm coming up against in the system. And I need all of us to take ownership. And sure, I'll take ownership for my part, but I'm not going to be the only one to take ownership. And so part of, I think, what's been a relief for a lot of the folks that I work with is by getting more systemic and really building on a systemic change strategy, it's actually been like, oh, okay, right, yeah, it's not just me. And it's been eye-opening for them and, and a validation for what they've always been feeling but never been able to say. So partners inside the organization, our talent makers need to kind of really partner with their recruiting team to make sure that it's not just one team that's wholly responsible for the whole thing. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that sometimes part of the challenge is that people within don't necessarily have that view. And so, I mean, if there's one, if there's a person in your organization that has a more systems-oriented point of view or perspective, that is the kind of person that can really help mobilize all the different players within the organization, especially if you don't have someone who is an EID expert. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been wonderful to have you in the Talent Makers podcast booth. (laughs) We'll talk again soon. Thanks. in the Talent Makers Studio. Tune in to our next episode as we explore stories of how great leaders and managers at companies like VaynerMedia, TalkDesk, Alphabet, and Bevy are transforming business by changing their approach to hiring. You can also learn more by visiting greenhouse.io backslash talentmakers. makers.